Chapter 4, Part 2 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. The Alchemists, Part 2. Pietro d'Apone. This unlucky sage was born at Apone, near Padua, in the year 1250. Like his friend Arnold de Villeneuve, he was an eminent physician, and a pretender to the arts of astrology and alchemy. He practiced for many years in Paris, and made great wealth by killing and curing, and telling fortunes. In an evil day for him he returned to his own country, with the reputation of being a magician of the first order. It was universally believed that he had drawn seven evil spirits from the infernal regions, whom he kept enclosed in seven crystal vases, until he required their services, when he sent them forth to the ends of the earth, to execute his pleasure. One spirit excelled in philosophy, a second in alchemy, a third in astrology, a fourth in physic, a fifth in poetry, a sixth in music, and the seventh in painting. And whenever Pietro wished for information or instruction in any of these arts, he had only to go to his crystal vase and liberate the presiding spirit. Immediately all the secrets of the art were revealed to him, and he might, if it pleased him, excel Homer in poetry, Apelles in painting, or Pythagoras himself in philosophy. Although he could make gold out of brass, it was said of him that he was very sparing of his powers in that respect, and kept himself constantly supplied with money by other and less credible means. Whenever he dispersed gold, he muttered a certain charm, known only to himself, and next morning the gold was safe again in his own possession. The traitor to whom he gave it might lock it in his strong-box, and have it guarded by a troop of soldiers, but the charmed metal flew back to its old master. Even if it were buried in the earth, or thrown into the sea, the dawn of the next morning would behold it in the pockets of Pietro. Few people, in consequence, like to have dealings with such a personage, especially for gold. Some, bolder than the rest, thought that his power did not extend over silver, but when they made the experiment they found themselves mistaken. Bolts and bars could not restrain it, and it sometimes became invisible in their very hands, and was whisked through the air to the purse of the magician. He necessarily acquired a very bad character, and having given utterance to some sentiments regarding religion, which were the very reverse of orthodox, he was summoned before the tribunals of the Inquisition to answer for his crimes as a heretic and a sorcerer. He loudly protested his innocence, even upon the rack, where he suffered more torture than nature could support. He died in prison ere his trial was concluded, but was afterwards found guilty. His bones were ordered to be dug up and publicly burned. He was also burned in effigy in the streets of Padua. Raymond Lully While Arnold de Villeneuve and Pietro d'Apone flourished in France and Italy, a more celebrated adept than either appeared in Spain. This was Raymond Lully, a name which stands in the first rank among alchemists. Unlike many of his predecessors, he made no pretensions to astrology or necromancy, but, taking Geber for his model, studied intently the nature and composition of metals, without reference to charms, incantations, or any foolish ceremonies. It was not, however, till late in life that he commenced his study of the art. His early and middle age were spent in a different manner, and his whole history is romantic in the extreme. He was born in an illustrious family in Majorca in the year 1235. When that island was taken from the Saracens by James I, King of Aragon, in 1230, the father of Raymond, who was originally of Catalonia, settled there. 
and received a considerable appointment from the crown. Raymond married at an early age, and being fond of pleasure, he left the solitudes of his native isle, and passed over with his bride into Spain. He was made Grand Seneschal at the court of King James, and led a gay life for several years. Faithless to his wife, he was always in the pursuit of some new beauty, till his heart was fixed at last by the lovely but unkind Ambrosia de Castello. This lady, like her admirer, was married, but unlike him, was faithful to her vows, and treated all his solicitations with disdain. Raymond was so enamoured that repulse only increased his flame. He lingered all night under her windows, wrote passionate verses in her praise, neglected his affairs, and made himself the butt of all the courtiers. One day, while watching under her lattice, he by chance caught sight of her bosom, as her neckerchief was blown aside by the wind. The fit of inspiration came over him, and he sat down and composed some tender stanzas upon the subject, and sent them to the lady. The fair Ambrosia had never before condescended to answer his letters, but she replied to this. She told him that she could never listen to his suit, that it was unbecoming in a wise man to fix his thoughts, as he had done, on any other than his God, and entreated him to devote himself to a religious life, and conquer the unworthy passion which he had suffered to consume him. She, however, offered, if he wished it, to show him the fair bosom which had so captivated him. Raymond was delighted. He thought the latter part of this epistle but ill corresponded with the former, and that Ambrosia, in spite of the good advice she gave him, had at last relented, and would make him as happy as he desired. He followed her about from place to place, entreating her to fulfil her promise, but still Ambrosia was cold, and implored him with tears to importune her no longer, for that she never could be his, and never would, if she were free to-morrow. "'What means your letter, then?' said the despairing lover. "'I will show you,' replied Ambrosia, who immediately uncovered her bosom, and exposed to the eyes of her horror-stricken admirer a large cancer which had extended to both breasts. She saw that he was shocked, and extending her hand to him, she prayed him once more to lead a religious life, and set his heart upon the Creator, and not upon the creature. He went home an altered man. He threw up on the morrow his valuable appointment at the court, separated from his wife, and took a farewell of his children, after dividing one half of his ample fortune among them. The other half he shared among the poor. He then threw himself at the foot of a crucifix, and devoted himself to the service of God, vowing, as the most acceptable atonement for his errors, that he would employ the remainder of his days in the task of converting the Mussulmans to the Christian religion. In his dream he saw Jesus Christ, who said to him, Raymond, Raymond, follow me. The vision was three times repeated, and Raymond was convinced that it was an intimation direct from heaven. Having put his affairs in order, he set out on a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. James of Compostello, and afterwards lived for ten years in solitude amid the mountains of Aranda. Here he learned the Arabic, to qualify himself for his mission of converting the Mohammedans. He also studied various sciences, as taught in the works of the learned men of the East, and first made acquaintance with the writings of Geber, which were destined to exercise so much influence over his future life. At the end of this probation, and when he had entered his fortieth year, he emerged from his solitude into more active life. With some remains of his fortune, which had accumulated during his retirement, he founded a college for the study of Arabic, which was approved of by the Pope, with many commendations upon his zeal and piety. At this time he narrowly escaped assassination from an Arabian youth whom he had taken into his service. Raymond prayed to God, in some of his excesses of fanaticism, 
that he might suffer martyrdom in his holy cause. His servant had overheard him, and being as great a fanatic as his master, he resolved to gratify his wish, and punish him at the same time for the curses which he incessantly launched against Mohammed and all who believed in him, by stabbing him to the heart. He therefore aimed a blow at his master as he sat one day at table, but the instinct of self-preservation being stronger than the desire of martyrdom, Raymond grappled with his antagonist and overthrew him. He scorned to take his life himself, but handed him over to the authorities of the town, by whom he was afterwards found dead in his prison. After this adventure Raymond travelled to Paris, where he resided for some time, and made the acquaintance of Arnold de Villeneuve. From him he probably received some encouragement to search for the philosopher's stone, as he began from that time forth to devote less of his attention to religious matters and more to the study of alchemy. Still, he never lost sight of the great object for which he lived, the conversion of the Mohammedans, and proceeded to Rome to communicate personally with Pope John the Twenty-First on the best measures to be adopted for that end. The Pope gave him encouragement in words, but failed to associate any other persons with him in the enterprise which he meditated. Raymond, therefore, set out for Tunis alone, and was kindly received by many Arabian philosophers who had heard of his fame as a professor of alchemy. If he had stuck to alchemy while in their country, it would have been well for him, but he began cursing Mohammed, and got himself into trouble. While preaching the doctrines of Christianity in the great bazaar of Tunis, he was arrested and thrown into prison. He was shortly afterwards brought to trial, and sentenced to death. Some of his philosophic friends interceded hard for him, and he was pardoned upon condition that he left Africa immediately, and never again set foot in it. If he was found there again, no matter what his object might be, or whatever length of time might intervene, his original sentence would be carried into execution. Raymond was not at all solicitous of martyrdom, when it came to the point, whatever he might have been when there was no danger, and he gladly accepted his life upon these conditions, and left Tunis with the intention of proceeding to Rome. He afterwards changed his plan, and established himself at Milan, where for a length of time he practised alchemy, and some say astrology, with great success. Many writers who believe in the secrets of alchemy, and who have noticed the life of Raymond Lully, assert that while in Milan he received letters from Edward, King of England, inviting him to settle in his states. They add that Lully gladly accepted the invitation, and had apartments assigned for his use in the Tower of London, where he refined much gold, superintended the coinage of rose nobles, and made gold out of iron, quicksilver, lead, and pewter, to the amount of six millions. The writers in the Bibliographe Universelle, an excellent authority in general, deny that Raymond was ever in England, and say that in all these stories of his wondrous powers as an alchemist, he has been mistaken for another Raymond, a Jew of Tarragona. Naudet, in his Apologie, says simply that six millions were given by Raymond Lully to King Edward to make war against the Turks and other infidels. Not that he transmuted so much metal into gold, but, as he afterwards adds, that he advised Edward to lay a tax upon wool, which produced that amount. To show that Raymond went to England, his admirers quote a work attributed to him, De Transmutatione Animi Metallorum, in which he expressly says that he was in England at the intercession of the king. The hermetic writers are not agreed whether it was Edward I or Edward II who invited him over, but by fixing the date of his journey in 1312, they make it appear that it was Edward II. Edmund Dickinson, in his work on the quintessences of the philosophers, says that Raymond worked in Westminster Abbey, where, a long time after his departure, there was found in the cell which he had occupied a great quantity of golden dust, of which the architects made a great profit. 
In the biographical sketch of John Kremer, abbot of Westminster, given by Lenglet, it is said that it was chiefly among his instrumentality that Raymond came to England. Kremer had been himself for thirty years occupied in the vain search for the philosopher's stone, when he accidentally met Raymond in Italy, and endeavoured to induce him to communicate his grand secret. Raymond told him that he must find it for himself, as all great alchemists had done before him. Kremer, on his return to England, spoke to King Edward in high terms of the wonderful attainments of the philosopher, and a letter of invitation was forthwith sent him. Robert Constantinus, in the Nomenclator Scriptorum Mediocrum, published in 1515, says that after a great deal of research he found that Raymond Lully resided for some time in London, and that he actually made gold by means of the philosopher's stone in the tower, that he had seen the golden pieces of his coinage, which were still named in England the nobles of Raymond, or Rose Nobles. Lully himself appears to have boasted that he made gold, for in his well-known testamentum he states that he converted no less than fifty thousand pounds weight of quicksilver, lead, and pewter into that metal. It seems highly probable that the English king, believing in the extraordinary powers of the alchemist, invited him to England to make test of them, and that he was employed in refining gold and in coining. Camden, who is not credulous in matters like these, affords his countenance to the story of his coinage of nobles, and there is nothing at all wonderful in the fact of a man famous for his knowledge of metals being employed in such a capacity. Raymond was, at this time, an old man, in his seventy-seventh year, and somewhat in his dotage. He was willing enough to have it believed that he had discovered the grand secret, and supported the rumour rather than contradicted it. He did not long remain in England, but returned to Rome to carry out the projects which were nearer to his heart than the profession of alchemy. He had proposed them to several successive popes, with little or no success. The first was a plan for the introduction of the Oriental languages into all monasteries of Europe. The second for the reduction into one of all the military orders, that being united, they might move more efficaciously against the Saracens, and the third, that the sovereign pontiff should forbid the works of Averroes to be read in the schools, as being more favourable to Mahometanism than to Christianity. The Pope did not receive the old man with much cordiality, and after remaining for about two years in Rome, he proceeded once more to Africa, alone and unprotected, to preach the gospel of Jesus. He landed at Bona in 1314, and so irritated the Mahometans by cursing their prophet, that they stoned him, and left him for dead on the seashore. He was found some hours afterward by a party of Genoese merchants, who conveyed him on board their vessel, and sailed toward Majorca. The unfortunate man still breathed, but could not articulate. He lingered in this state for some days, and expired just as the vessel arrived within sight of his native shores. His body was conveyed with great pomp to the church of St. Eulala at Palma, where a public funeral was instituted in his honour. Miracles were afterwards said to have been worked at his tomb. Thus ended the career of Raymond Lully, one of the most extraordinary men of his age, and, with the exception of his last boasts about the six millions of gold, the least inclined to quackery of any of the professors of alchemy. His writings were very numerous, and include nearly five hundred volumes, upon grammar, rhetoric, morals, theology, politics, civil and canon law, physics, metaphysics, astronomy, medicine, and chemistry. Roger Bacon The powerful delusion of alchemy seized upon a mind still greater than that of Raymond Lully. Roger Bacon firmly believed in the philosopher's stone, and spent much of his time in search of it. His example helped to render all the learned men of the time more convinced of its practicability, and more eager in the pursuit. He was born at Ilchester, in the county of Somerset, in the year 1214. 
He studied for some time in the University of Oxford, and afterwards in that of Paris, in which he received the degree of Doctor of Divinity. Returning to England in 1240, he became a monk of the Order of St. Francis. He was by far the most learned man of his age, and his acquirements were so much above the comprehension of his contemporaries that they could only account for them by supposing that he was indebted for them to the devil. Voltaire has not inaptly designated him de l'or encorté de toutes les ordures de son siècle. But the crust of the superstition that enveloped his powerful mind, though it may have dimmed, could not obscure the brightness of his genius. To him, and apparently to him only, among all the inquiring spirits of the time, were known the properties of the concave and convex lens. He also invented the magic lantern, that pretty plaything of modern days, which acquired for him a reputation that embittered his life. In a history of alchemy, the name of this great man cannot be omitted, although, unlike many others of whom we shall have occasion to speak, he only made it secondary to other pursuits. The love of universal knowledge that filled his mind would not allow him to neglect one branch of science, of which neither he nor the world could yet see the absurdity. He made ample amends for his time lost in this pursuit by his knowledge in physics and his acquaintance with astronomy. The telescope, burning lenses, and gunpowder are discoveries which may well carry his fame to the remotest time, and make the world blind to the one spot of folly, the diagnosis of the age in which he lived, and the circumstances by which he was surrounded. His treatise on the admirable power of art and nature in the production of the philosopher's stone was translated into French by Gérard de Tourne, and published at Lyon in 1557. His Mirror of Alchemy was also published in French in the same year, and in Paris in 1612, with some additions from the works of Raymond Lully. A complete list of all the published treatises upon the subject may be seen in L'Anglais de Fresnoy. Pope John the Twenty-Second. This prelate is said to have been the friend and pupil of Arnold de Villeneuve, by whom he was instructed in all the secrets of alchemy. Tradition asserts of him that he made great quantities of gold, and died as rich as Croesus. He was born at Cahors, in the province of Guyenne, in the year 1244. He was a very eloquent preacher, and soon reached high dignity in the church. He wrote a work on the transmutation of metals, and had a famous laboratory at Avignon. He issued two bulls against the numerous pretenders to the art, who had sprung up in every part of Christendom, from which it might be inferred that he was himself free from the delusion. The alchemists claim him, however, as one of the most distinguished and successful professors of their art, and say that his bulls were not directed against the real adepts, but the false pretenders. They lay particular stress upon these words in his bull, Spondant quas non exibant divities popere alchemisti. These, it is clear, they say, relate only to poor alchemists, and therefore false ones. He died in the year 1344, leaving in his coffers a sum of eighteen millions of florins. Popular belief alleged that he had made and not amassed this treasure, and alchemists complacently cite this as a proof that the philosopher's stone was not such a chimera as the incredulous pretended. They take it for granted that John really left this money, and ask by what possible means he could have accumulated it. Replying to their own question, they say triumphantly, his book shows it was by alchemy, the secrets of which he learned from Arnold de Villeneuve and Raymond Lully. But he was as prudent as all other hermetic philosophers. Whoever would read his book to find out his secret would employ all his labor in vain. The Pope took good care not to divulge it. Unluckily, for their own credit, all these gold-makers are in the same predicament. Their great secret loses its worth, most wonderfully in the telling, and therefore they keep it snugly to themselves. 
Perhaps they thought that, if everybody could transmute metals, gold would be so plentiful that it would be no longer valuable, and that some new art would be requisite to transmute it back again into steel and iron. If so, society is much indebted to them for their forbearance. Jean de Myung. All classes of men dabbled in the art at this time. The last mentioned was a pope. The one of whom we now speak was a poet. Jean de Myung, the celebrated author of the Roman de la Rose, was born in the year 1279 or 1280, and was a great personage at the courts of Louis X, Philip the Long, Charles IV, and Philip de Valois. His famous poem of the Roman de la Rose, which treats of every subject in vogue at that day, necessarily makes great mention of alchemy. Jean was a firm believer in the art, and wrote, besides his roman, two shorter poems, the one entitled The Remonstrance of Nature to the Wandering Alchemist, and The Reply of the Alchemist to Nature. Poetry and alchemy were his delight, and priests and women were his abomination. A pleasant story is related of him in the ladies of the court of Charles the Fourth. He had written the following libelous couplet upon the fair sex, Toute cette serait ou fut, de fait ou de volonté, putain, et qui très bien vous chercherez, toute putain vous toujourez. Footnote. These verses are but a coarser expression of the slanderous line of Pope, that every woman is at heart a rake. This naturally gave great offence, and being perceived one day in the king's antechamber, by some ladies who were waiting for an audience, they resolved to punish him. To the number of ten or twelve, they armed themselves with canes and rods, and surrounding the unlucky poet, called upon the gentlemen present to strip him naked, that they might wreak just vengeance upon him, and lash him through the streets of the town. Some of the lords present were in no wise loath, and promised themselves great sport from his punishment. Jean de Mion was unmoved by their threats, and stood up calmly in the midst of them, begging them to hear him first, and then, if not satisfied, they might do as they liked with him. Silence being restored, he stood upon a chair, and entered on his defence. He acknowledged that he was the author of the obnoxious verses, but denied that they bore reference to all womankind. He only meant to speak of the vicious and abandoned, whereas those whom he saw around him were patterns of virtue, loveliness, and modesty. If, however, any lady present thought herself aggrieved, he would consent to be stripped, and she might lash him till her arms were wearied. It is added that by this means Jean escaped his flogging, and that the wrath of the fair ones immediately subsided. The gentlemen present were, however, of opinion, that if every lady in the room whose character corresponded with the verses had taken him at his word, the poet would in all probability have been beaten to death. All his life long he evinced a great animosity toward the priesthood, and his famous poem abounds with passages reflecting upon their avarice, cruelty, and immorality. At his death he left a large box, filled with some weighty material, which he bequeathed to the Cordeliers as a peace-offering, for the abuse he had lavished upon them. As his practice of alchemy was well known, it was thought that the box was filled with gold and silver, and the Cordeliers congratulated themselves on their rich acquisition. When it came to be opened, they found to their horror that it was filled only with slates, scratched with hieroglyphic and cabalistic characters. Indignant at the insult, they determined to refuse him Christian burial, on pretense that he was a sorcerer. He was, however, honorably buried in Paris, the whole court attending his funeral. End of chapter 4, part 2